Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 5, Episode 4, The End. Let's get this show on the road. I was not prepared for this episode. I know I didn't tell you anything on purpose. <laughs> I know we just talked about it on TikTok very briefly in another comment that came up, but like, like, I understand how much shit you have to hide from me in the like remaining 11 seasons or 10 seasons, still 11 and a half, 10 and a half, whatever. And it, regardless, obviously there's gonna be like one-offs here and there that are gonna shock me, but like, it still shocks me every time something this crazy happens and I don't know about it. This is an episode that like is really iconic in season five because it, it's it's really used in order to talk about the character of Dean under pressure and the character of Cass without his grace, basically. I'll be honest, I only know this because of our podcast, that there is a nomenclature for writing characters when they're from different universes. This like <laughs> descriptor exclamation mark name type thing, which I never really understood until I put two and two together in our note-taking. If you're going to talk about Dean in the end, there are two Deans. How do you make the difference between endverse Dean and current Dean? And the cat is very upset about all this. <laughs> Your cat's like, I don't agree with this endverse bullshit. <laughs> exactly. He's like, there are no cats in endverse. I'm very unhappy about this. All that aside, this was an incredibly gay episode again. The gay vibes are strong this time. And to be fair, this could have been gayer, but we'll talk about that in critical time. I'm intrigued to get there. So shall we hop into a recap? Let's do it. I'll count you down. Three, two, one, go. Sam calls Dean and is all like, I want to get back into hunting. I realize I have to do things my own way. And Dean is all like, mm, no. And then Zachariah is all like, mm, you should see the future. And then Dean's in the future, just wakes up in an apocalypse. And it looks like the Croatoa virus is back because it's written in big letters on the wall. So, oh my God, return of demon disease. He eventually gets found by a camp of people and because he gets distracted by baby, of course. And who else is it that finds him but the best hunter on the planet himself? So we've got Dean and versus Dean and we're seeing Dean in the far off future of 2014. And we get to see Cass in the future and we get to see Chuck in the future. And, like, future Dean is kind of an ass, but it's, like, understandably explained. It's really weird, but, like, it makes sense in the, in the episode. And then, ultimately, he sees Sam possessed by Lucifer, because Sam apparently said yes at some point. Lucifer kills future Dean, and it's all like, I'm gonna be really sassy at you, current Dean. And then Dean ends up back in his place, and he's all like, okay, I'm gonna make the big change I have to make. And take Sam back under my wing. Time. That was the episode. That was the obvious choice from the beginning, wasn't it? I don't think so. I think a lot of people watching would have been like, I feel like I would have taken, I would have said yes to Michael. The smart viewer choice is the obvious choice is to say yes to Michael. But like the second the episode started on a whole like Sam and Dean, like still not being together, they make like a big point about the fact that he hasn't spoken to Sam in so many years before he finally said yes to Lucifer. I was like, so Dean's going to go back and make a big change by just saying, hey, Sam, stick with me. Well, I mean, we'll talk about that in 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 story time. 
Well, let's properly dig into the long game. So the cult is back, maybe? And it can kill Lucifer. Yeah, it's like talked about, and then in the future it's found, and the assumption is they're going to use it on Lucifer, but that just sort of seems to be like inverse Dean theory. Like, do we have anything else that says this may actually work? At the moment, this is all we got. I, I don't think it'll work, but I'm curious to see him try. There are two very iconic cast lines that we oh get my God, yes. in the very beginning of it, which is the voice says I'm almost out of minutes, and uh, I'll just wait here then. The image of, like, Cass standing on the side of a road for, like, I don't know, 20 hours or so, just <laughs> waiting until he can go see his Dean. Also, I also must compare, and I had no knowledge of this beforehand, the the voice saying I'm almost out of minutes uh, feels a lot like my thank you robot lady during all of our uh, post shows in Impala Talks. Yes, because Dean can't hear it, but he can. <laughs> it's the same. I don't know. It I just feels it. very, like, person interacting with technology in a way that, like, most people know not to do, but he's like, oh, I'm confused. I'm very confused. Well, I mean, that's Cass and just anything that is human-based, I guess. So Croatoan is back, like you said, and this is basically a worst-case scenario of what would happen in 2014 if 2019 doesn't agree to be Michael's vessel. And I just want to mention that there's a mention of President Palin. And for those of us who went through that election... I mean, you know, they were they were two years off, but the writers were right about the worst case scenario being a puppet president elected in the U.S. There were a lot of things they were right about in this episode that I don't feel comfortable with. I'm sure we'll get to. <laughs> <laughs> um, we find out that street preachers are actually angel informants. I almost want to see that conversation. Like, I want that cutaway of like dude on street who's trying to give out pamphlets meeting Zachariah and Zachariah being like, okay, bear with me for a second. I am an angel and we exist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I need the dirty details. Give them to me. So in the endverse reality, Bobby is dead. Cass is a stoned, horny hippie and Sam is possessed by Lucifer and Dean, well, Dean is struggling. And we'll talk about this later, but this is very much the worst case scenario and... Uh, so Enver's Dean, uh, uh, with the same nomenclature that you mentioned, you know, Enver's uh, exclamation mark, Dean, all in one word. He, so he talks about every hidden lockpick, box cutter, and switchblade that he carries. And so we need to remember that for a while, because we need to know that Dean carries this stuff and doesn't tell people about it. And yeah, I feel like Dean is also the kind of person who would always have those things on him. Like, that doesn't come as a shock to me. No, it doesn't. I guess the only the only information is that he he would have them in very specific places always and he knows where they are and like it has like a an importance, right? There's an order to that, I guess. And it also tells you that it's probably something that it's worth mentioning because obviously Enverstein brings it up, that it's not just a coincidence that someone would have these things. It's like you have exactly these things, exactly where I hide them, and I it feels like I don't think anyone else would check those spots for those things. We also find out that Dean likes pink satin underwear. Yep, that's a reveal. I mean, why not? Detroit is mentioned as the place of a big showdown where Sam says yes to Lucifer, and we really need to keep that in mind. I will be excited for our next trip to Detroit in the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the moment that we're going to hear Detroit again, you're going to be like, oh no, not Detroit! (laughs) (laughs) Good, okay, trauma response, got it. Yeah, there you go. Chuck is back, 
yay, Chuck is back. And Chuck says some very troubling things. Well, that's the thing. Like, hearing Chuck tell Dean to hoard toilet paper really hits different (laughs) after living through, like, the great toilet paper shortage of March 2020. Like, Chuck really is a prophet. Yeah, seriously, like, the combination of this, like, clearly just being, like, an end-of-the-world joke that, like, I feel like other media has made. To be watching this today and looking back at it and also having it be Chuck the Prophet say it is just like, oh, if they only knew. Yeah, watching this in 2022 is is just, it's not the same as watching it in 2009. Let's just put it that way. Uh, and there's another thing that I sort of wanted to bring up because it just, it didn't really fit anywhere else and I wanted to talk about it anyway. So Cass says, I thought you'd gotten over trying to label me. And I wanted to spend just a little bit of time putting words on subtext here because I know that not necessarily everybody who listens to us is queer or has queer community around them. Basically, like the idea of label within the queer community is very specific. And then you have people like me who don't like labels. So either they pick the closest one uh, to who they are uh, or they pick a different one depending on the context. And that personally, that's what I do. But then you have people who prefer to remain unlabeled. And to queer folks, it sounds like this is what's happening here. Cass is telling Dean that he doesn't fit within any specific label. Yeah, like this is one of those lines where I could imagine again, like, again, this is all headcanon here outside of like within the writer's room of like using this terminology and then explaining it away as like, oh, like nicknames. Like, it's just it's it's not it's harmless when in reality there is a very obvious meaning and very clear definition to the term label and a very understood context. As if as if using it in the context of queerness is harmful, right? Like that's the uh, the underlying Anyway, I know to me, it really seemed like a it felt like Cass's way of saying, like, you stop trying to figure me out and my orientations, meaning you lost interest in me in a romantic way. And we've now gone our separate ways romantically. That was really how I read it. Okay, are we ready for story time? Oh, I really am. So today our theme is Crossroads. What a bizarre theme we've never brought up before, ever. <laughs> well, we've never really brought it as like the theme of an episode. So we thought that that could be an interesting one. And I guess it's an easy one in terms of meaning because like it's pretty self-explanatory, right? It's the, the literal intersection of two roads. If we want to go more into the figurative sense, it basically represents a metaphorical fork in the road where like your path and your life will be different because of this one choice that you make. Like, I feel like the best way to explain this is, and I'm having a really stupid moment where I can't recall the exact name of the film, but it's a classic Christmas film where I hate to describe it as someone attempts to take their own life and then is shown what life would be like without them. It's a, it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life complex of we are literally seeing a what life would be like if... Dean does X or Dean does Y. So we're really getting to see one fork in this crossroad. It makes it a very easy talking point this week. Right, exactly. For a reference that's a bit more millennial, I guess I would say the butterfly effect. So how about we start with Sam this week because we see so little of him. Yeah, Sam gets like no screen time. I think we get more screen time with Sam as Lucifer than Sam as Sam. I agree, right? Oh my gosh, that's so true. Like, it's probably down just a few seconds difference, but, like, I would love to go time that and see who gets more screen time. But I feel like this is a weird theme this episode, and I guess it kind of makes sense with the fact that we're kind of doing a time jump, in a sense, this episode. 
the biggest choice that Sam clearly makes is the choice to say yes to Lucifer. And this is a choice we see or we don't see. It's off screen, essentially. And I think it says a lot that sometimes the choices we think we'll make are not the ones we will make down the road. Like, I'm sure if you talk to Sam, like, right now, we've clearly seen Sam say, no, never, not in a million years, I would kill myself before letting you take my body. Yes, we know eventually in this scenario he will get to that point and say yes to Lucifer. I think it's more interesting to know, and obviously that's what we're going to go over the next few episodes, I'm sure, what is going to change between current Sam and what is ostensibly inverse Sam to make him say yes to Lucifer. What is that switch? What is that, like, pivot? Is it a slow burn? Is it a sudden realization? And I think it just, to see the choices you make, and like, we're going to talk about this more with Dean as well, I feel, but to see the choices you would make not thinking you would never make them. This is really interesting. So you're telling me that you think that no matter what happens, Sam is going to say yes to Lucifer. In this scenario, yes. Obviously, Dean's att- Dean spoiler Dean's attempt at the end of this episode to reunite with Sam and try to be with him, I assume is an attempt to stop that from happening. So I'm curious to see what the factor is that if it goes unchecked would lead to that yes. So it's it's almost less the choice; it's more the things that happen to you leading up to that choice that makes you make a choice you right now would say no to. Yeah, how circumstances affect your decisions, basically. Precisely. I I think you just put it a little more elegantly, yes. Okay, so you focused very much on end versus Sam. I did not. I focused on current Sam, like on regular, no prefix Sam, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Sam exclamation point Sam. Yes, Sam, 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 Sam. Sam, Sam. (laughs) And what I find really interesting about Sam, Sam's storyline this week is that There's a bit of a reminder there that sometimes the decision to go one way or another at a crossroads isn't entirely or at least only yours. Like, of course, he wants to hunt with Dean again, but at this point, it's really not up to him to decide if that's going to happen or not. It's up to Dean. And then Dean is the one to make that decision for him. True. It's it's I think something we often overlook when it comes to making huge choices like at a crossroad like this is that. You know, you put yourself in that position and go like, what choice would I make? But you then have to remember that the choices you make do affect others. Other people being affected may, might change what you are able to choose. And I think it's, it's just it's a really important thing to remember in this moment. Because mm-hmm. that's what you're saying, right? That like our choices affect others, but other people's choices affect us as well. Like it's it's it, there's a there's totally back and forth. It's like it's like a two way road. Oh my goodness. The metaphors, the roads. One would say it's a highway to hell. (gasps) Do you want to talk about Cass? I really do. Do you want to get us started? Sure. I think that for Cass, the crossroad that like he has come to many times before that point, and we've even watched him go through it in season four and in this episode too, that choice is basically like anything in the world or Dean. And every single time he chooses Dean, he picked Dean over heaven in season four and told him as much in 502. Good God, y'all. And in this episode, Andrew's Cass is choosing Dean over his own life. Like he knows that he's going to die in that attack and he goes anyway. And he's ready to do that, even though he 
clearly has some issues with Enverus Dean. Like he's literally mocking him by calling him fearless leader. Uh, he's also calling him out about the torturing. And, and in spite of all of that, like he's still willing to die for him. So I would say that what changes Cass's path and frankly, what changes Cass is Dean. There's something to be said here about the, again, the continued relationship between Cass and Dean, even in the inverse, as much as we talked about in the long game briefly, how it feels like they have very much ended any attempt at a romantic future together. Cass hasn't let go of it. Like, to know that there is no future for you and the other person, but you still care about them so much that you'll still go along with whatever you can get. It's like a weird mix of, like, Stockholm Syndrome and friend zoning to the extreme. I, I just find it really interesting that you're seeing the, the, the romance as dead because I really don't. So I, I'm, like, listening to you very intently. You know, and that's also part of it, too, is I feel like part of the... And this is something about Zachariah that I've noticed is there seems to be this, like, bending everything to make things fit his narrative better. Like I kind of said during the first time we meet him that he, like, wants to prove they'll still be hunters. So let me put them in basically a trap where they're going to have to be hunters to prove my point. Like, he's very tricky that way. This very much feels like, let me create a scenario where I let you see how much Cass loves you but is suffering because you won't love him back. This actually brings me to the question that we are going to answer on our Impala Talk. So we're going to keep that in mind and put a pin in it, if you don't mind. Sure. So the last thing, I'll, so I, hopefully I won't dig into it too much, but I do want to go on Cass a little bit more here. And again, it kind of feels like Cass's big crossword choice is also made off screen, kind of like Sam, sort of in the, uh, the time we're not seeing. This Cass reminds me of a, like, what if scenario. You know, what if Cass, you know, did get laid that night in the brothel on the last episode and went the way of a horn dog in the future? Uh, it's again, like we've created a worst case scenario cast. We've created a cast who is a bit Dean-ish in the way he acts. Kind of this like machoism, like, you know, putting on this act for these women to like get them into an orgy. Like it feels very like I'm tricking them into getting sex out of them. Which seems like the darkest route Cass could go down after, you know, experiencing a woman for the first time. And again, this all leads to my point of like, Zachariah is creating these snares. Like, sure, it's a possible future. And I'm going with the logic of like, there's multiple possible futures, not one set in stone. Obviously, this choice has not been made yet. And they're convinced that uh, Dean can make the right choice, air quotes here, uh, and get the future they want. Meaning that future must exist. So again, my time... My time universe theory explained, that means this was a very specific branch of the future that Zachariah chose for very specific reasons. And I think setting up this worst case, this chauvinistic Dean-like Cass, who is like heartbroken by Dean and is filling the void with like pointless sex, essentially, is Zachariah's uh, attempt to give us the worst possible Cass. And, and I think that you're making excellent points about this, like, idea of basically the multiverse, like multi, a multitude of potential futures. I sort of saw Cass's, like, fall from grace, quote unquote, more as, um, so you know in the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yes, I know the Lord of the Rings very well. Continue. <laughs> when Arwen decides to stay in middle, on Middle Earth 
and the elves decide to leave to oh my goodness I cannot remember uh but anyway they decide to leave and um they sail away and she stays and by being far from them she basically loses her her grace slowly but surely in order to stay with her husband and that's kind of how I saw Cass because he uh, he also chooses well, his husband over, you know, the elves, in this case, the angels who have left earth and he's here and he's losing his grace and he is now mortal. The same way that Arwen is and eventually fades away and, and, and passes away. In this world, we see a broken Cass, but despite the brokenness of Enverse Cass, there is still on his end a lot of love for Dean to the point where, like you said before, he makes every choice to be about Dean because that's his endgame. Yeah, there you go. And I think that, well, I mean, we'll talk about Dean in that exact moment. Like, literally, now. We can start talking about Dean now if you want to, actually. <laughs> yeah, basically, Dean sees that and it breaks him, quite literally. Um, and I've been, I've been thinking about this for a while, and I think that... The crossroads itself for Dean is not whether or not he says yes to Michael, because obviously we know that he chooses not to. But I was wondering what exactly makes the scales tip for him. And I think that it's the people he loves. He chooses Sam, even though he was learning to be himself and enjoying being by himself. And he chooses Cass. And this is where like this loops back into our conversation because he knows that Enver's Cass always chose Enver's Dean. And that is literally what rendered him like the person that he is in that universe. It broke him. Like, I just want us to pay attention for a second to the face that he makes when Cass tells him that he's quote unquote, generally stoned. Like his entire face falls and he goes, what happened to you? And I know that Cass replies, life, but the real answer is you. That's what happened, you. So anyway, I just think that Dean sees that and he chooses to be there for his own loved ones in order to avoid what happens to them in Enverse. You know, it feels weird because again, we're discussing a crossroads is such a interesting point to discuss because it's a lot of times we're talking about the crossroads, it's the potentials of those decisions. But we are literally watching the inverse happen. We're watching the what is assumed one of two branches uh, majorly for the decision of whether or not to accept Michael. The entire time, Enver's Dean knows that he now has an opportunity to convince his past self to not make the same mistake he did. He very clearly admits that he knows he's never going to make that choice. He knows no matter what he does now that Dean Dean is never going to go back and go, you're right, let me take Michael, because that's the right thing to do. He knows it's not going to happen, so he still has to go through with his plan that involves sacrificing his loved ones. He is stuck making the choice to sacrifice those he loves to try and save the world because he knows that his past self will never make the choice he didn't make himself. And this is basically the kind of decision-making process that Sam was going through in season four to not really care about 
the means and to only care about the ends. So we kind of see, we basically see, we saw in season four, like how broken Sam was in order to do that. And now we're seeing Andrew's Dean. And I, I guess what I want us to remember, because I didn't manage to remember it for Sam, is that this is a broken person. Like, I think Enver's Dean is a lot of things that, like, we cannot imagine our Dean doing. Uh, namely, sacrificing people and, like, just kind of being a general, like... I mean, he's torturing again. He's he's the worst version of Dean. But given what we know about Dean and where he is going in this possible future... he's You're right, he's broken. That's he's He's given up on trying to do the right thing. He is very much in the, like, I don't care what it takes, we're doing this. Dean, Dean, Dean. Are we ready to head into critical time? Yes, we are. So, who was behind this episode? Because, again, this was a really, like, heartfelt, dark, and powerful episode. Well, you will not be surprised to find out that the writer for this episode was my beloved Ben Edlund. Ben, in a very gay episode... The shock. <laughs> the shock. This <laughs> this poor person must have his ears like just ringing every single time that I sing his praise. <laughs> <laughs> this episode was also directed by Steve Boyum. That's a name we've seen quite a bit now. Am I crazy? There you go. It's it, the directors are usually like people who who come back basically who direct a few episodes per uh, per season. Drew, do you have any fun scribbles in your hunter's journal? Oh, I do. Before the witch burnt, she told me how I would die. Part of me felt invincible, knowing that I can do anything and live. Sure, this has resulted in its fair share of broken bones and hospital stays. But she told me I would die in a fire, like she did. And any sane man would tell you, eh, I ignored it. Just some witch's last words to try and scare me. But when I survived through so many encounters with creatures and spirits that would have killed anyone else, I began to wonder. I began to push a little bit. I once fought a demon in a hardware store. It got away and presumed me dead after throwing me through several, and I mean several, aisles of knives. I was in the hospital with over 58 stab wounds. Not a single organ was hit. They said it was impossible. Although, this didn't last too long, though. I began to fear fire. I couldn't cook on a gas stove or a barbecue. I couldn't light candles. Soon I stopped turning on lights after a bulb burst once. I went from an unkillable force to a sad, lonely man sitting in the dark very fast. Sometimes, word is not meant to know that much. This episode gave me kind of a Final Destination-y vibe, so I kind of I went know, with it. I was going to be like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I think we've seen this film before and I didn't like the ending. Uh, this is our second Taylor Swift reference today. <laughs> do you have any thoughts to share with us this week? Oh, do I have thoughts? Okay, for the listener, before we get into this, there is normally a document we kind of take notes in and there are like images and things were like redacted for me. So I literally, like, I, I never read ahead for my own safety, but like, Barry took some, like, time to make sure this was hidden from me, so I'm very excited. Not that I'm not excited most weeks, or every week, but this week I'm particularly intrigued, so please go. Well, I think that this is going to be a bit of a bombshell for you. I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode that, like, no matter how gay it already is, it could have been gayer. I have two examples 
uh, for this episode that I know of. First is Enverse Cass's line uh, when he says, what, I like past you. That, my friend, was not the original line. And not only was it not the original line, but it wasn't even the line that was recorded for the show. The line that was shot was, what, I love past you. And if you look at Misha's mouth as he's mouthing the words, he is clearly mouthing, I love past you. Not, I like past you. I love past you. Basically, the show had Misha Collins come back to audio record the line again and replace love with like. I'm shaking. I'm shaking my head. Just disappointment, showrunners. This next one is even like. They did. They did my boy Ben dirty. The second thing is the conversation between Dean and Enverse Cass in the car when they're about to go kill Lucifer or try to go kill Lucifer. Basically, like the dialogue that made it into the episode was, thanks, except I used to belong to a much better club, and now I'm powerless. I'm hapless, I'm hopeless. I mean, why the hell not bury myself in women and decadence, right? It's the end, baby. That's what decadence is for. Why not bang a few gongs before the lights go out? But then, that's, that's just how I roll. The line that was in earlier drafts of the script was, and I quote, But instead, we become this. The only thing I think we have left, Dean and me, is each other. Stage direction, unadorned sincerity. If Dean says it's time to go out in a blaze of glory, win or lose, so be it. I'm in. But then, stage direction, smiles easily at Dean. That's just how I roll. Jesus. What interests me the most about this show is what actually made it into the episode. Like, especially when we're trying to interpret the narrative text of the show. But I think that in some cases, looking at what didn't make it can talk a little bit about the intent of the creative team. And here we're seeing like two very distinct forces in the production. One that's trying to weave a really profound relationship between Dean and Cass, and another that does not want them to look too gay. And we had this conversation already in season four when Castiel appears on Dean's motel bed and Kim Manners had said that they couldn't do that because it was too gay. So that struggle for narrative control is visibly following these characters into season five. The fact that we didn't get this version, that we're literally looking at another, like, potential future here, and this is the one we did not get, we got the worst outcome of the two, (laughs) and we still discerned the same queer energy regardless. That's so meta, I love it. (laughs) But again, the fact that we are able to look at the version we got and see what we see, even without knowing there was a gayer version out there, a gayer potential future we still found the queer and it was still very much there even when they attempted to hide it from us. Yeah, the queer is not hiding anywhere. We're, we're going to find it. <laughs> All right, let's go and listen to what our community has to say. This week, we have a message from Sophia. And before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwigward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Drew and I will be answering the question, was Endverse really the future or was it a trick world entirely created by Zachariah? For our Roadhouse patrons and coffee supporters on our Impala Talk. 
Hi, Marie. Hi, Drew. I first wanted to say what a fan I am of your show. After watching the series finale, I wasn't sure I was ever going to be able to watch Supernatural in any capacity again. Despite feeling nervous, I took a chance on your podcast, and it was my bridge back to Supernatural. Supernatural has meant a lot to me and has gotten me through many tough times, so thank you for the show and community. Something I want to comment on is the use of reoccurring side characters and world building in Supernatural. In episode 10, Heaven and Hell, I remember this really being highlighted. You talked about the scene where Ruby, Anna, and Pamela were talking. I remember watching this on TV when it first aired and how excited I was about it. I didn't understand until more recently why these episodes excited me. I think in part, Supernatural introduced a lot of interesting characters that they would sometimes sprinkle back in for an episode or an arc. I understood that they were trying to enforce the idea that it was Sam and Dean against the world, even if Cass and others not yet introduced had a bigger role. But I often found whenever reoccurring characters like Ruby or Bella, who were not as reoccurring as Cass, had more time in a particular arc, it felt like the writing was more concrete. These episodes felt to me like they had more of a vision of where they were going narratively. Unfortunately, at the end of these mini arcs, I would experience whiplash as we'd watch these plots fade away into nothing or see the side character who we'd grown to like be killed off. In an anxiety-prone way, I will admit that it was exhilarating to have absolutely no idea where the show was going. I'm pretty good at guessing at what comes next, but with Supernatural, I had to give up trying because this show would take you in a million different directions. I do take into consideration the amount of showrunners, writers, and even not knowing if they were going to get picked up the next season, but I don't think it did a service to a show to to underuse these characters. This is a reoccurring theme in Supernatural to me, of introducing many plots and ideas and leaving them underdeveloped. It never made sense to me that if they were so unsure of whether or not they'd be picked up for the next season, why they would zigzag through many different ideas instead of narrowing it down and slowly exploring new ideas when it made sense, or at least when other ideas were more fully developed. Supernatural does great world building in certain aspects, like with demons, but then would present really half-baked concepts that we will see in later seasons by rushing through plots that really deserve more time. I have a lot more to say about this topic. I will also have a lot more to say about how non-diverse most of these side characters that get to come back are. Even in this episode, when I look at the top cast on IMBD, it was just Uriel. Yes, it was 2008 if we were keeping that excuse, but I'm not sure how much more diverse these episodes get. They were diverse one-off characters with speaking lines, but did we get more than one diverse reoccurring character who would have the same weight as Jody, for example, in the same episode? Even if we had two, does that really count as diversity? I can think of examples in season 12 where they seem to be trying to do better, but in typical CW fashion, it fell through. As you can probably hear, I'm still pretty salty about it. And with that note, I will definitely have more to say about the horrific treatment of reoccurring characters that are introduced. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the message and the voicemail. That was phenomenal. And it gave me a lot to think about because it's something I've said before. And like to kind of hit the three big points, I feel the treatment of reoccurring characters make us feel for them and then just throw them away or make their death just a motivation to the main cast. And we've seen this several times throughout the series. It just, it, it's, it's unfair treatment. You're 100% right. So we have these side characters, some of whom I think deserve so much more time. Even Ruby, I felt, needed more time. Even though we did get a little bit more out of her at the end, and we got kind of like a, an end to her story. It felt very like, okay, I did the thing I had to do. I can be killed now. Bye, everyone. That's a wrap on Ruby. 
Again, Pamela felt a bit rushed. And again, like her killing just felt like a way to advance the story and getting rid of her because they were done with her, I guess. Again, to your second point, like it's, yeah, like no diversity. We get like, what, Muriel, who's now gone, Gordon, gone. Henriksen. Henriksen, thank you. Uh, like all of them made it through like maybe like three to four episodes, five of them really being generous for some of them. Even Gordon, who, like, got the most development out of the three of them, I still think they had so much more they could have done with him. And who knows how much of this is behind-the-scenes scheduling conflicts if they had to get off the show because of whatever reason. But it, it just feels unfair and not well done. I, I completely agree. Yeah, Sophia, thank you so much for, for sending us uh, this really thoughtful voicemail. Because, frankly, like, as you were speaking, I have to say that I was thinking much more of the later seasons, particularly within the Dab era, because you, you're absolutely right. Like, there's certainly an attempt at uh, diversifying the cast of recurring characters, and it, it, falls, it falls flat. That's true in the last uh, couple of seasons, I would say. I'm also thinking about the very, the, I suppose, like the most painful instance of fridging on Supernatural that we haven't gotten to, uh, but we will eventually. And to use what you were saying, I'm still very salty about that one too. And frankly, <laughs> I'm just very salty about Supernatural in general, as I think everybody knows. To respond specifically to what you said about the different threads being pulled at and not evenly, my hypothesis at this point in time is that it is specifically because of the writing team being pulled in so many directions and having so many different goals. And we're seeing it, we saw it in this particular episode with like two conflicting or opposing ideas. But in later seasons, it feels like every writer is pulling in, in their own direction. And I'm thinking about season 15 in particular, where it seems like one writer is writing one story, another writer is writing another story, and another writer is writing a whole other story. And it comes together in this season that feels a little disjointed, that feels very disjointed, actually. So particularly when we get to the Dab era, which is the, the later era, I'd like to start following like which writers write which storylines so that we can start getting an idea of who was rooting for what. Because I feel like I need to understand it. If I can understand it, then maybe I won't be as salty about it. There was something that came up recently, like a little tangent here. But uh, wife and I found a YouTube video, which is phenomenal. And it explains how the show Riverdale has gone completely off the rails. And has just become <laughs> like a nightmare spiral of like tangential storylines. And how it got to a point where like writers were not talking to each other. There was literally zero crossover. To the point where they wrote an episode that ended with the town being shut down for quarantine because the water was poisoned. And then the next episode begins, and we all got better. Story continues. Like, literally that level of writing of just, it's over now. As long as we're not getting that bad, I pray, I'll be okay. But I, I still think it'll be interesting to almost like, and again, I think I've used the metaphor of like, the pictures on a board with the red thread multiple times now. But to, like, writer to major plot lines would be a very interesting map to draw and see who's doing what. Well, I mean, we're going to keep a spreadsheet. It'll be a bit less conspiracy theorist. As long as we call the spreadsheet the red thread sheet, I'll be happy. The red thread sheet. Listeners, keep that in mind because we'll... 
I'm writing it down. Yep, you have to write it down. Put it on your wall, surrounded by red thread. <laughs> While I write that down, shall we go to our reflections and calls to action for the week? Yes. So I was actually listening to Chris and Jeremy on Monster of the Week talking about this episode, and Jeremy was specifically saying that he didn't understand why Dean didn't say yes to Michael, especially given like everything that he had seen in Enverse. And I think that that really spoke to me. My continued call to action, I guess, uh, because this is really a part of how I live my life, is to stick to my gut feelings and to make my decisions, even if they make no sense to anybody else but me. Because that's what Dean is doing, and those decisions that I've made in my life have been the best ones. I don't get why Dean doesn't just take this deal like it feels very like anti-sam and the like here's an obvious good solution he's like no no, no, i can do better again topic for another day i'm sure you're right your decisions are your decisions they don't have to make sense to other people you don't have to justify yourself like at the end of the day your decisions are yours they affect you of course they affect others but very no matter how you look at it they affect you primarily even if they don't make sense to everybody around you they don't need to what about you my dear I had a lot of trouble this week finding a connection. Like, I almost think it's funny that yours came from less the episode and more other people talking about the episode. Yeah, yeah. Well, that happens too. (laughs) I mean, we were talking about that, how, like, it didn't quite make sense to everybody why he did that. And I think that that's my lesson. Like, it didn't make sense to anybody but him. And that's good enough, you know? No, exactly. And I think it's great because it also, it it weirdly is almost where I felt I was going to go, but I think I kind of reverse engineered a way into the episode. As much as I've really been in those shoes, I really kind of feel for Cass in this episode, that like heartbroken puppy dog almost. I'm sure there's reasons. I'm sure there's conversations we don't see. And I'm sure in at least my reading of, uh, of inverse scene, inverse cast relationship, the love seems to be very one sided to me, at least. I think it just reminds me of all things to like remind the people who I care about that I care about them. Like, even if that is just like in our own little like love language to share something or send something or say something or do something in a way to remind people how much they mean to you. And like, sure, times might be tough and things may have changed. We may have moved apart. We might be in different countries or different cities or other sides of the planet. But like, there's still a relationship there. And I want to make sure you know it's important to me. So my call to action is to very specifically message some people I haven't messaged in a while and remind them how special they are to me. Oh, I love that. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano and hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigou. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira, Michelle, and Elle for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Sophia for their message. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at CarryingWayward. And leave us a rating and review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our Coffee, our Patreon, for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to CarryingWayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. Oh, we are going to find the queer. That sounds wrong. But I know, I know, I really did. Oh my god. You're gonna cut that, right? Because it sounded very weird. Yeah, no, I'm cutting that, don't worry. Okay, <laughs> might, cool. might be a blooper, but <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah, that, I would like that. Let's let's put the queer as the blooper. <laughs>